I was thinking yesterday afternoon about that verse, that text of Scripture that we read in the Gospels about the Lord Jesus when the wicked men and their mob of soldiers come to take Him away in the Garden of Gethsemane the night He was betrayed when His disciples, especially Peter, try to put a stop to the capture, the trial, and the execution of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus refers to the cup that the Father has given Him. And would you believe that there is a dispute that arises up amongst certain heretical preachers about the meaning of the cup that the Lord was given to drink? You remember that They came to take Jesus, and in John's Gospel, the 18th chapter, we read this, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first. For he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. The cup which my father hath given me. Now, these heretical preachers are so opposed to substitutionary atonement that they are quick to latch on to this text and claim that this cup is no cup of wrath or judgment, but rather it is something nice and prophetical. Perhaps it's Elijah's cup the last cup of the Passover feast that the Jewish people had added, which was a cup of wine that was left undrunk for Elijah to come and drink it one day and usher in the coming of the Messiah. And so they speculate that this cup which the Father has given Christ to drink must be some prophetical cup related to Uh, the Passover feast, and certainly it cannot be any indication or sign of God's wrath or God's judgment or um, anything of the sort. It could not be a cup of judgment or of wrath because they do not believe that God's wrath ever fell upon Christ for the sins of His people. And we've preached, what, 21 sermons on the subject of Christ and the curse of the law. And we all recognize this is false teaching. But in the Scriptures, this cup of God is often used to depict God's wrath. For example, Revelation 16, the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Now here, of course, this cup is used metaphorically, as of course it is by Christ a metaphorical image, if you will, of some portion which God has given to, proffered to, or forced upon 
the recipients of that cup. And in the case of Revelation 16, and you'll see the same thing in Revelation 14, this cup is a cup full of wrath, violence, and judgment against Babylon and against all of her cohorts for all the crimes she has committed against our great God. The Greek word for this cup is poterion, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. It primarily means a cup as in a drinking vessel. But metaphorically, the commentator says that it is one's lot or experience, whether joyous or adverse, divine appointments, whether favorable or unfavorable, are likened to a cup which God presents one to drink, so of prosperity and adversity. So it is similar to our phrase, our lot in life, which although it could be a good thing, it often has a negative connotation. It is our lot in life to be mistreated or to be unappreciated or to be poor, etc., etc., etc. But in the Scriptures, it is often used metaphorically to represent that which God ordains or brings into a person's life for good or for ill. Against the notion that this cup that Christ says He must drink is somehow some positive, happy, prophetical cup. There is the fact that this is one in the line of references to suffering and to death, which Christ has made within the last 12 hours of His life. Of course, we know that He had taught His disciples that He must be taken at the hands of wicked men and crucified and slain, rise again the third day. He had been teaching His disciples these things. And of course, they hark back to the Old Testament prophecies of what would become Messiah, which the Lord's people seem not to have understood. But Jesus had remarked several times upon His immediate suffering and death. For example, in Luke's Gospel, we read this morning, chapter 22 at verse 15, Jesus said, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So here was his pronouncement that as soon as the Passover was over, near soon after he would suffer. All that he had said before would come to pass in his travail of his soul, in his death and so forth, in his mistreatment at the hand of wicked men, in his final and ultimate rejection by his own people, the people of Israel. And so Christ expresses it was His desire that He should be able to eat this one last Passover before He suffer. And then at the end of the Lord's Supper, He says, Truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. That is, goeth down to death. But woe unto that man by whom He is betrayed. Speaking of Judas Iscariot in another Gospel, it says it would have been better had that man not been born. So Christ recognizes the suffering He's about to enter into. He assures the disciples that it will take place. He refers to it being determined beforehand. And of course, we know from Scripture that God determined everything that should happen to the Lord Jesus by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Peter told the wicked Jewish people on Pentecost Sunday, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. 
So you see, at the same time, God determined, ordained, caused to come to pass the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus and condemned the people that did it for their wicked deeds. And we see the same thing in Acts chapter 4 in the conclusion of Stephen's sermon before he was murdered, etc., etc. The Scriptures are very clear that whatever happened to Christ was the old-time plan of God carried out methodically, precisely, ordained by Him, decreed by Him to happen. And then, of course, not only does Christ refer to these instances of His suffering just hours before this cup is discussed, He also, in the implementation of the Lord's table, says, this is My body which is broken for you, which is given for you which is killed for you, the implication is because the next phrase is, this is My blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. Making clear that His body and His blood, His literal physical body, His literal physical blood would be made an offering for sin so that the sin of His people might be forgiven on account of the death of the Lamb of God on the cross. So there can be no doubt that the entire evening was drenched in statements by Christ about His impending suffering, His death, the purpose for it, the fact that it would be a judgment for the sin of His people. And then in Matthew 26 at verse 30, we read those other well-known words where he says, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Who is I? It's Jehovah God Himself. That's who it is that will smite the shepherd. Who's the shepherd? The Lord Jesus. What will be the result? All the disciples will be scattered. This is what Christ is saying. I'm about to be smitten by God. Well, this is another text that these same people deny. They claim it was somebody else's sword. But Jesus here makes it very clear whose sword it was. Of course, He's referring back to Zechariah chapter 13 where God says of His Messiah, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn my hand upon the little ones. There is no doubt here that the sword that's awakened against Messiah is the wrath and judgment of God against His own Son. And when He is smitten, His sheep are scattered. But of course, Christ assures us that none will be lost, for He will gather them up when He rises again from the dead. So God's sword smote the shepherd, His Son, And so therefore there can be no doubt again that the context of this cup is one of judgment, of wrath, of death, etc. But the cup that Jesus said He must drink of from the Father is clearly portrayed as a cup of dread and terror in the Garden of Gethsemane just before the incident with Peter and Malchus and the guards, and the rabble of wicked men. We know that story well. 
Mark 14 at verse 32, they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Now, of course, this does not sound like a cup of blessing. It doesn't sound like a joyous cup or a prophetical cup or some cup fraught with great symbolism of the apocalypse. It just sounds like a bitter, dangerous, terrorizing cup. And in another text, it says he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Now, Brother Gill has this to say about this particular cup. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, meaning all his future sufferings and death which were at hand, together with the bearing of the sins of his people, the enduring of the curse of the law, and the wrath of God, all which were ingredients in and made up this dreadful bitter cup, this cup of fury, cursing and trembling, called a cup alluding to these sorrows, sufferings and death of Christ, being what were allotted and appointed by His heavenly Father. And when He prays that this cup might pass from Him, His meaning is that He might be freed from the present horrors of His mind, be excused the sufferings of death, and be delivered from the curse of the law and wrath of God, which request was made without sin, though it betrayed the weakness of the human nature under its insupportable load and its reluctance to suffering and death, which is natural. The human nature of Christ was now, as it were, swallowed up in sorrow and intent upon nothing but sufferings and death, had nothing in view but the wrath of God and the curse of the law, so that everything else was for the present out of sight, as the purposes of God, His counsel and covenant, His own engagements, office, and the salvation of His people. Hence, it is no wonder to hear such a request made. And yet, it is with this condition, if it be possible. In Mark, it is said, all things are possible unto thee. Intimating that the taking away or causing the cup to pass from Him was possible. All things are possible to God, which is consistent with the perfections of His nature and the counsel of His will, and all such things, though possible in themselves, yet are not under such and such circumstances so. The removal of the cup from Christ was possible in itself, but not as things were circumstanced. And as matters then stood, therefore it is hypothetically put, if it be possible, as it was not. And that by reason of the decrees and purposes of God, which had fixed it, and are immutable, and on account of the covenant in which Christ had agreed unto it, and is unalterable, and also on the score of the prophecies of the Old Testament in which it had been often spoken of. And therefore without it, how should the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Christ raised that as one of the reasons why He should not reject the cup when the soldiers, the mob, and the wicked men came to take Him away. They would not have been the Scriptures of truth if the Scriptures had not been thus fulfilled. Besides, Christ had foretold it Himself once and again, that is, His death, 
and therefore consistent with the truth of his own predictions, it could not be dispensed with. Add to all this that the salvation of his people required his drinking it. That could not be brought about no other way in agreement with the veracity, faithfulness, justice, and holiness of God. This condition qualifies and restrains the above petition. So that cup was what God the Father had ordained for His Son to go through. The cruelty of the cross, the bogus unjust trial and condemnation, the crucifixion, the mocking, the shame, the being numbered with the transgressors, bearing the sins of His people, being treated as guilty by God, under the curse condemned by God for our sins and in our place, being forsaken by God unto all this judgment, being crushed by God and made an offering for sin to die for His sheep, to be buried and to rise again the third day. That was that cup which Christ must drink. All of that which God had ordained that He should suffer. All that was the cup that Christ must drink. And so then Gil says of the text in John 18 at verse 11, The cup which my Father hath given me, by the cup is meant the wrath of God and punishment due to sin endured by Christ in His sufferings and is said to be given Him by His Father because He called Him to these sufferings. They were appointed and determined by the Father. Yea, He was even ordered and commanded by His Father to drink of this cup. Justice mixed it up and put it into His hands. And He took it as coming from His Father who delighted in seeing Him drink it up as the safety of His people. And a dreadful one it was, a cup of trembling and astonishment, of curse and not a blessing, of wrath and fury. The illusion seems to be to the master of the family who appointed and gave to everyone their cup. Then Christ asked, Shall I not drink it? Which expresses His willingness to do it, His eager desire after it, His delight in it, a displeasure at Peter's attempt to hinder Him, He being now perfectly reconciled in His human nature to drink it, though it was so bitter a portion. He found it was impossible, considering the decree of God, His own agreement, and the salvation of His people, that it should be otherwise. And besides, it was His Father's will and pleasure. He considered it as coming from Him, and therefore cheerfully accepted it, and was resolved to drink it up, and that nothing should hinder Him. The Persic version reads it, I will not give it to another to drink. Peter, by this rash action, seeming as if he could have the cup out of Christ's hands, and have drunk it himself, which, as it could not be, nor would Christ suffer it. So if he had, it would have been of no advantage to the salvation of His people. This is why we love the words of that hymn that we sang this morning by Anne Rose Cousin. O Christ, what burdens bowed Thy head! Our load was laid on Thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead to bear all ill for me. A victim led, Thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, was full for Thee. But Thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Left but the love for me. Jehovah lifted up His rod. O Christ, it fell on Thee.
Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There is not one stroke for me. Thy blood beneath that rod hath flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. Jehovah bid his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood its flaming blade was slake. Thy heart its sheath must be. All for me, my soul to win, now sleeps that sword against me. One other frustration of the heretic. Those who mock God's providence and working of all things after the counsel of His will. They say that makes God the author of sin. They say that gives man an excuse for his crimes. But of course, Paul rebukes such foolishness in Romans chapter 9. But everything that happens through God's determination and decree, yet men are judged for their sins, as the Scriptures say they ought to be. These false teachers mock and say when we pray for deliverance, well, whatever God ordained will happen, so why bother to pray? Or, why are you complaining about the evils of wicked men since they wouldn't have done it unless God had decreed it? Don't cry out for men to change their attitude and flee to Christ because after all, God's determined whatever's going to happen anyway. And they mock thus the power of God and the decree of God and make it seem as if man has no responsibility or accountability. Why do men refuse to believe, people will ask. Well, because God ordained them not to believe. And then they laugh hysterically. But look at the example of Christ. He knew the eternal will and purpose of God in His death and suffering. And There can be no dispute that God had decreed and ordained these things to happen. Even these false teachers can't deny that. That in the case of Christ, there was no doubt the perfect will and decree of God that He should suffer these things, that all these crimes should be committed against Him, that He should suffer death for the saving of His people. But look at what Christ did. He knew all these things and yet He prayed. Yet He mourned and wept over it. Yet He rebuked wicked people for their sins, knowing that God had ordained them for whatever purpose God has and for whatever pleasure He has in all the things that He does. And so, to the mockers of the Scriptures in these matters, they must not be read as to deny Christ His right to come to His Father in complaint about the Father's will which Christ knew perfectly well and which was set forth in Scripture and which could not be broken. And yet Christ came to His Father and cried out in His humanity, didn't He? Cried out in His humanity and knew the evil that was to be done to Him. Mourned the evil that would happen to Judas Iscariot. Even though what Judas did was perfectly ordained and brought about by God. Those who mock the Bible's teaching about God's power and sovereignty and control act as if they would clap their hands across Christ's mouth in Gethsemane. And such blasphemy ought not to be, ought not to stand. 
and we should preach against it. You know, Christ had a bitter cup to drink. And it was that cup of wrath which we should have drunk, but He drained it all away for us Himself, did He not? But you know, we have a different cup. We have a cup of blessing, don't we? And it all flows from the same thing. The cup of bitterness is in effect the cup of blessing. The body of Christ and the cup of the blood of Christ which are proffered to us week by week symbolically they're knit together, you see. That cup of bitterness that Christ drunk for us and that cup of blessing that He gives to us in which is portrayed all of our hope, all of our life. The Apostle Paul referred to this cup of blessing in 1 Corinthians 10 at verse 16 where he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion? of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh, are they not who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Here is the cup, if you will, of curse and of suffering which Christ drained for us now transformed, as it were, into a cup of blessing, a cup of remembrance and rejoicing of what the Lord Jesus' suffering accomplished for us. Salvation, glory, joy remain forever on our heads because of Jesus' work on the cross. And notice Paul is using this as a warning not to pollute the Lord's table, not to pollute the body of Christ, not to engage in idolatry at the same time we claim to be worshiping around the Lord's table. We have a cup of blessing. Why would we pollute it with anything unclean, unworthy, full of reproach against the Lord Jesus, against the work that He did to save us? The hymn writer concludes, For me, Lord Jesus, Thou hast died, and I have died in Thee. Thou art risen. My bands are all untied. And now Thou livest in me. The Father's face of radiant grace shines now in light on me. And you know it shines in light on Jesus. The Father was never displeased with the Son's offering for sin. He was never displeased with the Son's obedience to receive the judgment and the curse which God had laid out for Him to take away from us. And now there is this, this beaming of the Father's face upon His dear Son for all His splendid accomplishment on the cross and upon His dear people who are in His dear Son, who are held by His dear Son, who are saved by His dear Son. There is a face of radiant grace that envelops and engulfs all the church, the bride and the bridegroom are delighted in by the Father for the obedience of the Son and for the salvation of His people. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. How it pictures for us what Jesus did, the bitter cup He drank, so that we might have a couple blessing around this feast we have this Lord's day.
Oh God, our Father, we thank You for Your dear Son, for the Lamb of God offered up by You as a sacrifice in our place that He did not shrink from it. He went to it like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before our shears is dumb. So He opened not His mouth. He did not seek to avoid that judgment, but rather He was faithful to the end to save His people. We thank You for that bread that He left us that pictures His body that was torn and mutilated on the cross as our sacrifice, as our Lamb. We thank You that He has ordained this feast that we might know what the meaning of the bread and the wine are so that we might know what it is we really lay hold of. We lay hold of that body of Christ and that blood poured out. Not the symbols, but the reality. For in those physical offerings Christ made is all of our life and hope and joy. Bless us as we partake of this bread, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it, and He broke it and He said, Take and eat, this is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 144. 144 in the black book. Amidst us our Beloved stands and bids us view His pierced hands, points to the wounded feet inside, blessed emblems of the crucified. 144.